Hi everybody, it's a Friday. Um, oh, I am excited for this weekend. I know I promised you all I would not do any baking this weekend, but <laughs> my parents had their anniversary yesterday and um, my dad bought um, the champagne that they had at their wedding and they didn't drink all of it and so they got leftover champagne which, yes, I could use for mimosas or something. Or I could make champagne cupcakes. I'm leaning towards the champagne cupcake idea. Darn it. Darn it, darn it. <laughs> Maybe I'll make a low-calorie frosting to go with it. Do you think I can get away with something like that? Maybe. Anyway. Alright, well, um... I hope you all have fun weekends in store, but first, let's talk about our story. We're at chapter 11 already. Um, I don't think I have any chapter notes this time, so, um, and it's a short chapter, so I'll probably do two today, so I'll just get launched in right away with chapter 11. Mrs. Dashwood or her daughters imagined when they first came into Devonshire that so many engagements would arise to occupy their time as shortly presented themselves, or that they would have such frequent invitations and such constant visitors as to leave them little leisure for serious employment. Yet such was the case. Serious employment does not mean serious employment like a job. It just means like you know, devoted time to, like, study your piano music or drawing or something. Like, that's serious employment, not, like, serious employment. Okay. Yet such was the case. When Marianne was recovered, the schemes of amusement at home and abroad, which Sir John had been previously forming, were put into execution. The private balls at the park began. The parties on the water were made accomplished as soon as a showery October would allow. And every e meeting of the kind between... In every meeting of the kind, Willoughby was included. And the ease and familiarity which naturally attended these parties were exactly calculated to give increasing intimacy with his acquaintance with the Dashwoods, to afford him the opportunity of witnessing the excellencies of Marianne, of marking his animated admiration of her and receiving in her behavior to himself the most pointed assurance of her affection. Eleanor could not be surprised at their attachment. She only wished that it were less openly shown and once or twice did venture to suggest the propriety of some self-command to Marianne. But Marianne abhorred all concealment where there was no real disgrace could could attend unreserve, and to aim at the restraint of sentiments which were not in themselves laudable appeared to her not merely as an unnecessary effort, but a disgraceful subject, subjection of reason to commonplace and mistaken notion. Willoughby thought the same, and their behavior at all times was an illustration of their opinions. So, this again, as we've moved into the Romantic era, the common theme of the day is um, emotion, feeling emotion, openness, um, and Marianne takes this to an extreme to mean that she does not need to show any reserve and 
like, um, because she sees any reserve of her emotions and, like, not showing her emotions openly as artifice. And that is bad. That is very against the romantic movement. Um, that would be affected, um, as we learned unaffected the other day. It would be affected if she started showing her emotions. Eleanor is like, okay, you can feel all you want to. Just, like, keep it a little inside. You're making yourselves the talk of all the neighborhood. Everyone's chatting about you guys, and that's just not proper. It's still not good just because the theme of the poetry of the day is moving you in that direction. Don't take it to that far. Um, so that's the, the debate that they're still having and will continue to have. So When he was present, she had no eyes for anyone else. Everything he did was right. Everything he said was clever. If their evenings at the park were concluded with cards, he cheated himself and all the rest of the party to get her a good hand. If dancing formed in the amusement of the night, they were partners for half the time, and when obliged to separate for a couple of dances, were careful to stand together and scarcely spoke a word to anybody else. Such conduct made them, of course, most exceedingly laughed at, but ridicule could not shame and seemed hardly to provoke them. So dances, um, <laughs> this is a fun, this is a fun little thing. Um, there was very rigid sets of rules around dancing, of course. I mean, in this era, who is surprised at this point if I said there are rules? Um, but yeah, dancing was not all willy-nilly fun times. Um, you were not supposed to dance too many dances in a row with the same gentleman, because that showed a level of impropriety. You were too closely attached to that gentleman. And a young lady who's not formally attached to him should not be allowed to be that close to him. So that's what they say. When they had to switch partners, when they had to, like, not dance together anymore, they, instead of dancing with other people, just stood close to each other and chatted through their ball. And then when it was, le like, legal, quote-unquote, for them to go out again, they went out with each other. Um... Which is the kind of thing you could get away with more at a private ball, at public balls, that um, they'd be a little more rigid. Um, we'll, we'll have some fun talks about dancing and um, the rules of dancing, the types of dancing, and dance cards, and the development of those when we get to probably as we read Northanger Abbey, I think, because when we go to she goes to Bath, and there are lots of public dances and everything, and yeah. So, for now, we'll just leave it there with that little note about dancing, and that's what they're talking about. And everybody's laughing at them, because they're a silly young couple who are acting in, in an improper way, but it's kind of adorable. So, that's how they're laughing. They're not, like, laughing, like, I don't know, mean laughing, but they're like, oh my gosh. Well, you get a load of those, too. How ridiculous. Um, and But they said that be, they don't feel any shame in what they're doing because it holds with their ideals of being open and honest and true. So, no shame. And in that society, shame was a real thing. Uh, if you grew up like I did in the West... Um, generally speaking, you did not have this sense of shame. Shame isn't something that we really teach um, because in, we really, in this modern era, we highly value individualism. 
individualism is pushed so far and so such at an early age. I mean, you always got to be it's it's about what matters. Are you being looked out for? What are your interests? How are your interests being met by this occasion? Um, individualism is pushed so hard that this idea of societal shame is really been kind of forsaken. Um, the idea that your actions will reflect badly on your family and those connected to you is kind of a bygone thought. Uh, it, and uh, that's, I realize this is a generalization. It's not true in all circumstances and not to all people. But one like example of this is people's reaction to having to wear face masks right now because of all the COVID stuff. Um, a lot of people are really upset and they're like, this is an infringement on my personal freedom. How dare you tell me what to do with my body? And it's because we have embraced this idea of individualism so much that it's the first time in their lives people have been asked to think about the greater good and not about themselves. And they are just railing against that. They're like, how dare? <laughs> Um, that's my personal opinion, um, and it strays a little from the topic, but yeah, so shame, though, is not something that we really have, and I read an interesting article a few years ago that in China they were going to, um, put people who had subway fines up on a billboard, on, like, a, an electric billboard, and, like, put their face and they're fine, and it was a way of shaming them into paying their subway fines. I'm like, if you did that here in the U.S., we would have competitions about who could be up on that billboard. Like, that's the difference. The idea of shame is that different. I mean, so it's not like shame like I did a bad thing, but like it's like societal shame is so important to them over there that they were like we will we will pay our fines because we don't want to be on the billboard and here we'd be like i want to be on that billboard i will have all the fines you know I, anyway shame is an interesting concept to me because i really think that we've kind of left it behind as a society um it was not and that true in jane austen's era um they still felt societal shame and shame of person of family was still a really big thing um I have talked too much. <laughs> I will go on with the story now. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Mrs. Dashwood entered into their feelings with a warmth which left her no inclination for checking this excessive display of them. To her it was but the natural consequence of a strong affection in the young and ardent mind. This was the season of happiness to Marianne. Her heart was devoted to Willoughby, and the fond attachment to Norland, which she brought with her from Sussex, was likely to be softened more than she had thought it possible before by the charms which his society bestowed on her present home. Eleanor's happiness was not so great. Her heart was not so much at ease, nor her satisfaction in their amusement so pure. They afforded her no companion that could make amends for what she had left behind, nor that could teach her to think of Norland with less regret than ever. Neither Lady Middleton nor Mrs. Jennings could supply to her the kind of conversation she missed, Although the latter was an everlasting talker, and from the first had regarded her with a kindness which ensured her a large share of her discourse. She had already repeated her own history to Eleanor three or four times, and had Eleanor's memory been equal to her means of improvement, she might have known very early in their acquaintance all the particulars of Mrs. Jennings' last illness, and what he had, Mr. Jennings' last illness, what he had said to his wife a few minutes before he died, 
Lady Middleton was more agreeable than her mother, only being more silent. Eleanor needed little observation to perceive that her reserve was mere calmness of manner, which with sense had nothing to do. Towards her husband and mother, she was the same as to them, and intimacy was therefore neither to be looked for nor desired. She had nothing to say one day that she had not said the day before. Her insipidity was invariable, for even her spirits were always the same, and though she did not oppose the parties arranged by her husband, provided everything were conducted in style, and her two eldest children attended her, she never appeared to receive more enjoyment from them than she might have experienced in sitting at home, and so little did her presence add to the pleasure of the others by any share in their conversation, they were sometimes reminded of her being amongst them by the solicitude about her three, about her troublesome boys. In Colonel Brandon alone, of all their new acquaintance, did Eleanor find a person who could any degree claim the respect of abilities, excite that interest of friendship, or give pleasure as a companion. Willoughby was out of the question. Her admiration and regard, even sisterly regard, was all his own, but he was a lover. His attentions were wholly Marianne's, and far and a far less agreeable man might have been more generally pleasing. Colonel Brandon, unfortunately for himself, had no such encouragement to think only of Marianne, and in conversing with Eleanor he found the greatest consolation for the total indifference of her sister. Eleanor's compassion for him increased, as she had reason to suspect the misery of a disappointed love already known by him. This suspicion was given by some words which accidentally dropped from him one evening at the park, when they were sitting down together by mutual consent, sorry, while the others were dancing. His eyes were fixed on Marianne. After a silence of some minutes, he said with a faint smile, Your sister, I understand, does not approve of second attachments. No, replied Eleanor. All her opinions are, are all romantic. Or rather, as I believe, she considers them impossible to exist. I believe she does. But how she contrives it without reflecting on the character of her own father, who had himself two wives, I know not. A few years, however, will settle her opinions on the reasonable basis of common sense and observation, and then they may be more easy to define and justify than they are now by anybody but herself. This will probably be the case, he replied, and yet there is something so amiable in the prejudice of a young mind that one is sorry to see them give way to the reception of more general opinions. I cannot agree with you there, said Eleanor. There are inconveniences attending to such feelings as Marianne's, which all the charms of enthusiasm and the ignorance of the world cannot atone for. Her systems have all the unfortunate tendency of setting propriety at naught, and a better acquaintance with the world is what I look forward to her greatest possible advantage. After a short pause, he resumed the conversation by saying, Does your sister make no distinction in her objections against second attachment, or is it equally criminal in everybody? Are those who have been disappointed in their first chance, whether from the inconstancy of its object or the perseverance of circumstance, to be equally indifferent, dur indifferent during the rest of their lives? Upon my word, I am not acquainted with the minutia of her principles. I only know that I never heard her yet admit any instance of a second attachment's being pardonable. This, said he, cannot hold but a change, a total change of sentiments. No, no, do not desire it. 
For when the romantic refinements of a young mind are obliged to give way, how frequently they are succeeded by opinions as all too common and too dangerous, I speak from experience. I once knew a young lady who in temper and mind greatly resembled your sister, who thought and judged like her, but who from an enforced change from a series of unfortunate circumstances... Here he stopped suddenly, appeared to think that he had said too much, and by his countenance gave rise to conjectures which might not have otherwise entered Eleanor's head. The lady would probably have passed without suspicion had he not convinced Miss Dashwood of that, that what concerned her ought not to escape his lips. As it was, it required but a slight effort of fancy to connect his emotion with the tender recollection of a past regard. Eleanor attempted no more. But Marianne, in her place, would not have done so little. The whole story would have been speedily formed under active imagination, and everything established in the most melancholy order of disastrous love. End chapter 11. Well, second attachments. Um, so falling in love a second time is essentially what they mean by second attachment. I assume you're all following that. Um, Marianne has that very young girl sort of romantic view of you can only fall in love once because, you know, I don't know, love is forever no matter what. And it, it is a very, it is a very young romantic thing to think. Um, Eleanor is like, I really hope she grows out of these opinions. She really needs to meet more in the world with people and learn that her own opinions are not always right. And Colonel Brandon is like, eh, sometimes it's better to hold on to some of those thoughts and opinions because when you are disillusioned, it can sometimes really hurt. Um, and then he stopped himself short. So Eleanor is like, oh, there's probably a story there. But Eleanor, in her sense of um calm and reasonableness of mind doesn't try to fill in any blanks she assumes he had a past regret but she doesn't make up any story in her mind um and they joked as you know she was saying that marianne would have done that um i would have done that it i does not take much at all for me to form a story in my mind of what happened to someone all i have to hear is you know the couple at the booth arguing behind me and not only do I want to weigh in on that argument, but I have already decided what has all happened in the past in their relationship. Like, I don't know. I have a wild active imagination and nothing has ever stopped that from happening. And yet Eleanor is like, let's, let's just not jump to conclusions. We don't need to, you know, make things up in our own minds. We'll find out if we find out. And if we don't, we don't. Um, and I'm like, Psh boring let's make up a story um but that's <laughs> yeah it's just me anyway um so yeah marianne is being actively in love with willoughby their mother should under like normal terms of the day she should take pains to check her as what they call them you know like to rein her daughter in from being so openly in love with Willoughby, but to Mrs. Dashwood, this is all just, it's okay, it's fine, they're young people, they're ardent, you know, why, why not? 
let them be in love all they want to be. What's the big deal? Um, so Mrs. Dashwood, in some respects, is kind of letting this happen. And they're kind of setting that up, too, that as a more romantic woman herself, she's just letting this girl kind of run wild, um, which was generally looked down on. You know, the parent is supposed to be there to be the voice of reason. And again and again, already in this book, we've had to see Eleanor be the voice of reason in her family. Um, so it's, it's an interesting family dynamic and that makes me feel extra sorry for Eleanor. Um, and I also thought, you know, I felt sorry for Eleanor too, because they did mention that like, since she left Norland and Edward's company, she hasn't met anybody whom she like really can talk to that much and enjoy their company. And, uh, you know, it's sad. Like, I feel really sorry for, for dear old Eleanor. Um, it must be. It must be very hard for her, the poor thing. Um, all right. Well, that was chapter 11. Next chapter is super short, so I will go ahead and redo that. Um, you've probably been hearing a little ringling. That's not my dinner bell. That's my cat's bell. Um, and I can't really stop that. She kind of makes it happen herself. I don't know. Maybe she was trying to tell me she had an interruption to make in the story, and I just blew past her. So, sorry, Taffeta. Anyway... <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you guys soon.